Good morning, Gateway. This is Tom Bellino. Stop it. This always happens when I introduce somebody else. Gateway applauds. I have my tissue up here, Tom, for you and I. I'm really going to be mad at you today if you make me cry because Aaron Payne always calls me a crybaby. Tom's going to tell a little of his story and his journey. And seriously, Tom has a remarkable journey and a remarkable story that I think is going to be important for all of us and for our conversation about resilience. If this is your first time at Gateway, thanks so much for coming, and we're honored, and thanks for being our guest. We are at the end today of a series of conversations in which we're talking about resilience. We're talking about stick to and perseverance and what happens in our lives and what we need to happen in our lives and the kind of people that we need to be and the kind of practices that we need to undergo or discipline ourselves in in order to build resilience in our lives. And today is our last one, our last theme related to resilience. So uh, Tom, why don't you tell us a little something about how you and Becky and the kids came to Gateway? Well, essentially, when we came to Gateway, uh, I guess all I can say is I was a mess. My marriage was a mess. Becky and I, over the years, had lost uh, three children. And to add insult to injury, I had been unfaithful. So when we came to Gateway, we were struggling to keep our marriage together. And essentially, I, I was severely depressed and uh, really thought my life was over. Some friends of ours invited us to small group at Gateway. And so we came to Gateway, and we initially found the small group to be a whole different kind of people than we'd ever met before. They were real, they were loving, and they accepted us as we are and walked alongside us. Why was that important for you, Tom? Well, essentially, when I think back to when we lost the three kids, we had family and friends that supported us, but, you know, we really uh, thought we had to be strong. We didn't want to be a burden on other people. We didn't seek out help. I think we even tried to be strong for each other and didn't really share our grief with each other. Not that that makes any excuses, but, you know, I, I think, you know, as we healed through this, one of the things we learned is we didn't grieve well. And, you know, I found a place in the small group and in this community where I could be real and... You know, I was afraid I'd be rejected when I con confessed what I had done. And instead, I was loved. Not because of what I'd done, but because I was willing to share it with them. And that was a whole new experience for me. So, what happened? You began to share who well, you were? Well, I, I came, be, started in a small group and started with a group of people that were real, authentic, shared real life stuff, and we shared the Bible and how the Bible impacted our lives, how Christ impacted our lives. And even though I had grown up Catholic, went to Catholic school all my life, even graduated from Notre Dame, all my life the Bible was like a history book. It was a series of stories. But I started to see the Word of God as being impactful in my life, being part of my life. And through this small group through your sermons, your uh, preaching on the Bible, and through some Bible studies that I joined through the small group, God's Word just was enlightened to me. And for the first time in my life, instead of it being like a history book or a storybook, it was like a letter from God to me. And everything I read hmm. revealed something about God or revealed something about me. 
and started to change my whole perspective on life. So how did you grow? What, I mean, what happened next? Because Tom is one of the elders in our church, by the way. So something happened between that and, and eldership. What happened for Tom? Well, essentially, the, the kind of the first thing that happened to me is, you know, at that point in my life, I thought what I had done was unforgivable. Why did you think? Well, my theology up to that point in my life was a works theology. See, I think this is important. Pause. We all have theology. Now, some of us think, I don't like that word. I don't know. I barely know what that word means. Technically, theology means the study of God. We all have thoughts about God. We all have a way of organizing the world and thinking about ourselves and thinking about what's important and even thinking about destiny. We're so busy, we don't spend much time doing theology, but usually that means we do it badly. So for you, Tom, your theology was what? I believe salvation was based on what I do. And I thought I had to be perfect. And though in my heart I knew I wasn't perfect, I worked really hard to keep up a facade that I was the good guy, that I was perfect. I was the altar boy. I was, you know, um, captain of the football team. And I was the spiritual leader on the football team. And, you know, I thought it was all about me and what I did. And that became more about how I was viewed by others. So I became a, a people pleaser. I wasn't perfect, but I tried to be perfectly who I thought you wanted me to be. <laughs> and that's exhausting. So that way of doing yourself and that way of doing life, you end up feeling like what you have done, there's no coming back from. So one, once I you know, had sinned so deeply, something I thought I'd never do, thought I wasn't capable of it opened me up to realize that, you know, at first I thought, oh, I've been this good person and now I've done this bad thing. And as, you know, God worked through me and through small group, through his word, through a Christian therapist, I started to realize that I never was really good. That what I had done was really just a result of a life that was lived on thinking purely about me. It was a very self-centered life that was about soothing myself, about making myself comfortable and trying to, uh, to be someone I wasn't. And so I had reached a point where I failed. I failed at what I thought my life was about, and therefore I thought it was all done. I thought God wouldn't even forgive me. But it was through God's Word, at that time when God's Word opened up to me, I experienced grace in a whole different way. You know, in the Catholic Church, grace was something you were given by doing things, by doing the sacraments, by doing things. So it seemed like a merit system. But for the first time in my life, I realized grace wasn't about me, but it was about God. Hmm. Though what I did I thought was unforgivable, when God's Word opened up to me, not only was I not unforgivable, but I was already forgiven. And that's what really changed my life because... All of a sudden, it wasn't about doing things to earn grace or to earn salvation. God said, salvation's already yours through Jesus. And my life became more about thanksgiving, hmm. about not to pay God back, but to really, I wanted to share what I had received with others. So you, when we were talking yesterday, you said, 
I like this. You said, through struggles, we have felt more and more over the course of our lives like we were connected to community and more and more like we were in God's will. And you made the observation, Tom, your life began to change and you started to grow and it's not like things got all better. Things got better immensely, but it's, it's not like there was no struggle. But the struggles now have been different or you've seen them different or you've managed them differently or tell well, me about that. Well, essentially, you know, when we lost the children, Becky and I turned inside and tried to be strong, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But, you know, as we've experienced community and being part of a community, a caring community, we've gone through struggles since, but we haven't gone through them alone. About four and a half years ago, I lost my job, and I was unemployed for about five months. You know, and through that period, I was reassured by many that we'd be okay because there were people that were, were willing, you know, said, if worst comes to worst, you can live in our basement. And at your encouragement, I started a small group with some other men who had lost their jobs recently. And that became a source of strength and a source of, of comfort, as well as a devotional that uh, you suggested I, I do. And the interesting thing was, I didn't start the devotional right away, but it was interesting that about a week after I finished the devotionals when I got a job. So, you know, I... I just want to go on record saying, Diane, I think, was one of my wife, Diane, if you're visiting, was one of those people who said, you could live in our basement. That was all her. I had nothing <laughs> to do with that. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So, you know, especially last year, you know, when I got my first diagnosis of cancer, we were surrounded by prayer. And the uh, letters, uh, the emails, the personal encouragement we got from everybody really carried us through. I think back, you know, one of the things that carried me through the unemployment, I had reached a point one day in the unemployment where I came home. I had been on a prayer walk, and I came home, and I, I was just desperate. And I told Becky, I, I said, Becky, uh, you know, right now, all I see before me is darkness. I don't know if I'm st standing on the edge of a cliff or if there's a long runway ahead of me. I just have no idea what tomorrow brings. All I know is I have today. And she kind of shared with me that that's how she felt when I first told her about the affair. The thing is, in the past, I would have gone to a place of self-condemnation and, and self-pity and defensiveness at that point. But at that point in my life, I really understood the pain I had caused her. And then she assured me, she said, when you told me about the affair, I heard God assure me that I'd be okay no matter what. And she said, I still believe that today, and in your unemployment, we're going to be okay no matter what. So in, in, in that case, you know, she just reminded me that faith is, is what we cling to. And so each of the things we've gone through since my acceptance of Christ, we have felt very much God's presence. We felt his presence through many of the people in this room, through their prayers, through their, their positive words of encouragement, and through the leadership of, of this church that's always been right there for us. So you mentioned you have had a diagnosis of cancer. How did that happen? And tell us what's going on. Okay, July of 2016, I was diagnosed with uh, bladder cancer. 
And after a couple um, biopsies, well, they determined that they thought it was contained within the bladder. And so they recommended that I have my bladder removed. So just about a year ago, actually a year ago tomorrow, they removed my bladder. After the surgery, they... Um, the idea is the cancer is in the bladder, remove the bladder. If you remove the bladder and it hasn't penetrated the bladder or gotten into the lymph nodes, then I was considered cancer-free. So after the surgery, they did the biopsies on the bladder and they had removed like 37 lymph nodes and everything tested negative. And so a couple weeks after the surgery, my surgeon actually said to me the words, you're cancer-free, which I, it was, I was a bit shocked to hear that at that point. So then about three months later, they did a follow-up CT scan and they didn't find anything, said you're good. Six months after that, this July, they did another CAT scan. And this time they found cancer and it had spread. There was one tumor where the bladder had been. They think it's in the lymph node area. So they think it got into one of the lymph nodes they didn't remove. And it's also in my lungs and in my adrenal glands. And then later they found one in my brain, which they've treated with radiation. And so right now I'm um, halfway, well not halfway, I've had two cycles of chemo. And after the fourth cycle, they'll do a CT scan to see if the chemo's doing anything. What are they saying about the prospects of this? Essentially, they told me that we're not working for a cure here. We're working to manage, to manage the chemo, or the tumors and the, and the cancer as best as they can to extend my life as far as they can. If I know a good joke. So Tom, what do you do with, how do you process that? Well, I continue to, to, to trust God. You know, during the uh, initial cancer, I felt like it was very much in God's will. And I still feel that. That God is omniscient. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows every um, cell. He knows what the cancer's doing. He knows every hair that falls off my head, which for the last two weeks has been plenty. <laughs> um, Welcome to the club. <laughs> and that he's all-powerful. He's greater than this. And that he's sovereign. And so I continue to, um, to place my trust in him. So what do you do with the, uh, the doubt and the fear? There's definitely doubt and fear. I think with the initial information that the cancer had spread, I first kind of, I think I had kind of like a Moses argument with God. When God said he was gonna wipe out the Israelites and, and kind of Moses said, well, did you just bring us out here in the desert to wipe us out? What are people gonna say? You know, my first thoughts were, God, I thought you'd healed me and now you, you brought me here. And, and I had, you know, professed that you had healed me. What are you doing? You know, I had to just go back to that trust. I know that God's will is good and perfect, and that God works for the good, works all things for the good of those who believe. So I just tr continue to trust that he's working for the good, that he has a purpose in this, and that I'm in his will. But that doesn't mean I don't doubt. I mean, there's essentially two places I go occasionally. One is to fear, 
And that fear is the fear, I would say the fear of the unknown. Because I don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes I doubt the resurrection of the dead. But I kind of realize if I doubt the resurrection of the dead, that means I doubt the resurrection of Christ. And if I doubt the resurrection of Christ, then I doubt the deity of Christ, that he is God and that he is risen. So I realize I don't doubt that. So therefore, my belief in Christ and what he's done reassures me that there is resurrection of the dead. And the next doubt is there's times I fall back on my old theology. And I think, okay, I doubt my salvation. Because I start thinking, I'm not good enough. That I haven't done the things I should have. Or that I've left things, you know, I've done wrong things, or I haven't done things that I should have. And, And with that I realize, again, I'm doubting God. Because when I look at my life and all the things I have been through, God has been faithful. Mm. He has been there. He has supported me through this. He has redeemed my life. He's redeemed my marriage. I have a men's group that I work with Jan Zacharias with, and we've seen other men's lives totally redeemed by the Holy Spirit. And I have been so privileged to be in that place and to be part of what God's doing there. So I remember what God's doing in my life and what he's doing in the lives of people around me. And I say, I don't doubt that. I trust in that. So therefore, I continue to trust. The other thing I feel sometimes is sadness. And that sadness comes from the thought of, uh, the thought of leaving this world. And so sometimes I realize I might be holding too tight to this world, too tight to those I love. But I realized that, you know, we're meant for the kingdom. This isn't our eternal place, and that we're aliens here, and that we're citizens of the kingdom. And therefore, I have to remember that even if I'm not healed, it is good, because I will be in the kingdom with God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we add this prayer to the many that have gone before. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would heal Tom completely. We know you're able. We believe that. I thank you for the strength and the power of Tom's testimony. I thank you for what you've done in his life and through his life. And God, I'm amazed that you are using him even now. Lord, multiply the benefit that you have extended to Tom into our hearts and lives through his testimony. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Yogi Berra had an illustrious Hall of Fame 19-year career as a baseball catcher. Some of you know the name Yogi Berra. He played for the Yankees. He played in 75 World Series games. He was the MVP of the American League three times, but perhaps Yogi Berra was more well-known for what he said off the field than what he did on the field. Let me give you a sampling of Yogi Berra. I think we may need it after that. Yogi Berra is the one who said, it's deja vu all over again. 
Yogi Berra said, you can observe a lot just by watching. Once when Yogi was managing the Mets, the first lady of New York City, Mrs. John Lindsay, told Berra, my Mr. Berra, you look very cool in those bright uniforms, to which Yogi responded, you don't look so hot yourself. Once commenting on Yankee Stadium's notorious shadows in the outfield, Yogi said, hey, it gets late early out there. And when responding to one critic that he couldn't possibly have said all that had been attributed to him, Yogi responded, I didn't really say everything I said. Yogi was asked by another reporter, how did you like school when you were young? Yogi said, closed. He said, I'd give my right arm to be ambidextrous. He said, if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. And my favorite all-time Yogi quote, you've heard it before, this is Yogi Berra. Yogi said, the future ain't what it used to be. I'd have to respond to Yogi and ask, what future? If you mean the next 10 or 20 or 80 years here on planet Earth, then I'd agree. But if you mean our ultimate future, I'd highly disagree. Our ultimate future is what it's always been. It's the only real source of unalterable hope and unquenchable joy available to us. Everything else falters. Everything. For everything else, Yogi is absolutely right. But for our ultimate future, it's as brilliantly bright as it has ever been if our lives are connected to God through Christ. That's why spiritually resilient people live with the end in mind. Spiritually resilient people live with the end in mind. This is our last point, and it may be the most important, about resilience. And teenagers, I don't want you to snooze on this. In fact, this may be the most important point for you. Spiritually resilient people live with the end in mind. I'm going to explain more about that as we go through this morning. But I want you to remember that because that will mark your life out. Different from everyone you know. It will add elasticity. It will add perseverance to your life. Okay, I want to read a remarkable passage of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm just going to read verses 13 through 16, but we're going to reference a couple of other verses in it. I wish I had time to read the whole chapter. But this has sometimes been called the faith chapter. And the author of Hebrews, first of all, he gives us a definition of faith. And then he launches into this laundry list, this character list of people who exhibited faith and, and the great hall of fame of faith in the scriptures. A couple of times he stops for a big bird's eye view, and he gives us one of those in verses 13 through 16. So I want to read that now if I, I can, and let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. So I'm going to read Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these people, this catalog of faith that the author has been talking about, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Everything that they felt was coming to them, they did not receive all that was promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You may be seated. 
Resilient people live with the end in mind. This means that resilient people, people who have bounce back, people who can persevere, people who are not derailed by difficult circumstances, resilient people know, know a couple of key things and then they set their hope in a key direction. So people who live with the end in mind know a couple of key things. The first thing is resilient people know that this world is not the main world. Resilient people know that this world is not the main world. This is a tough one for us. Everything about our lives and everything about our training drives our attention to this world, to what's right in front of us. But resilient people know that this world is not the main world. I'm going to give you a terrible illustration for most of you. Those of you who know me know that I'm a football fan, an American football fan, and our family uh, roots for the New England Patriots. I did a wedding this weekend, and uh, the bride was, her family are Patriots fans, so we were talking about that for the whole weekend. We were laughing about it, and I really apologize to those of you who are Redskins fans. I don't mean to pick on you, because right now your record is better than the Patriots. But this girl said, yeah, you know, I have this discussion all the time with Redskins fans, and they you know, carp and carp about me. She said, I've come up with a good line. Diane and I both said, okay, tell us, what is it? And she said, well, I usually say to Redskins fans, so, you know, tell me, what's your big game? What's the big game for the Redskins? And she said, well, the big game for us is the Dallas Cowboys. And she said, I always say, well, the big game for us is the Super Bowl. So, <laughs> yes, you can be obnoxious when you root for the Patriots. But they are a team that lives with the end in mind. So we don't worry about what happens in October. For the Patriots, we play for December and January. Resilient people live with the end in mind, and they know that this world, this week, today's to-do list is not the main world. Verse 3 of Hebrews 11, you need to hear this. It says, by faith, so he's talking about what faithful people are like, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. There is a reality beyond the reality that you and I can see and hear and smell and taste and touch and experiment on. Verse 6 says this, without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And this is the work that Tom was saying that he has to do. He has to keep going back to that fundamental belief. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Rick Warren wrote Purpose Driven Life. Some of you read that years ago. Rick Warren said in Purpose Driven Life, this life is not all there is. Life on earth is just the dress rehearsal before the real production. You will spend far more time on the other side of death in eternity than you will here. Earth is the staging area, the preschool, the tryout for your life in eternity. It is the practice workout before the actual game, the warm-up lap before the race begins. This life is preparation for the next. You were made to last forever. Listen to verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith in things not yet seen, Noah acted based on the unseen world. Resilient people know that this world is not the main world. 
Secondly, second thing resilient people know. Resilient people know that this world cannot fully satisfy us. This world cannot fully satisfy us. Verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And he clearly wants to use Abraham as an illustration to us that we are looking for something different, toward something different, something beyond this. We are looking for most of our life. We're looking forward to what is beyond death, which will be the overwhelming majority of our life. This brings us back to verses 13 through 16. All of these people of faith, this catalog of faithful people, saw all that was promised, but only at a distance. Here's a major challenge to resilience for you and I. A major challenge to resilience for suburban Americans is if-then thinking. You know, if, if I get the promotion, then, then we'll be fully satisfied. If we could just sell the townhome and buy single family, then, then I'll feel all better. If we could just get pregnant, then I'll feel, then, then I'll be satisfied. Then it will all work out. If our expectation is that we will be fully satisfied here, then we will be consistently disappointed. Our resilience will be consistently challenged. Okay, so what I'd like to do now, if I can, is drill down on this with our hearts. So I'm going to do something unusual. I'm going to sing I know you're all nervous. You should be. I'm going to sing an old hymn, and I especially want you to ruminate on verses 3, 4, and 5 of this old hymn. I I don't think you'll know the melody. You may not know the words, but uh, this is my favorite hymn ever written. My God, I thank Thee who has made the earth so bright. So full of splendor and of joy, beauty and light. So many glorious things are here, noble and right. Okay, now join me on this verse. I thank thee too that thou hast made joy to abound. So many gentle thoughts and deeds circling us round. That in the darkest spot of earth some love is found. Pay attention to this choir. I thank thee more that all our joy is touched with pain. That shadows fall on brightest hours. That thorns remain. So that earth's bliss may be our guide. And not our 
change. How good is that? For thou who knowest, Lord, how soon our weak heart clings, hast given us joys tender and true, yet all with So that we see gleaming on high diviner things. All right, choir. I thank thee, Lord, that here our souls, though amply blessed, can never find, although they see. A perfect rest Nor ever shall Until they leave On Jesus' breast Let's do that again on Jesus On Jesus' breast One more time Malcolm Muggridge was a 20th century British journalist and a satirist. And Malcolm Muggridge said this at the end of his life. When I look back on my life nowadays, which I sometimes do, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, this is Muggridge continuing. Success in all of its various guises being known and being praised. Ostensible pleasure, like acquiring money or seducing women or traveling, going to and fro in the world and up and down in it like Satan, explaining and experiencing whatever Vanity Fair has to offer. In retrospect, all these exercises and self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pascal called licking the earth, end quote. The resilient person knows this, and keeps this in mind. So finally, knowing these things, the resilient person intentionally sets their hope on the world to come. Intentionally. Verse 16. Instead, they were longing for a better country. Longing. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This intentionally setting our hope involves disciplining our thought life. It involves thinking about God, thinking about our connection to God. It involves mentally exploring what God is like. It involves thinking about Jesus, the kind of life he lived, how he died, the reality of his resurrection. Did you hear Tom walking through that, that catalog as he's working his way toward faith and fear? And it involves thinking about our own destiny and our own death and about our future and eternity. This is what Peter, Jesus' best friend, meant in 1 Peter 1, 13. Peter said, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Don't set your hope on a bigger house. Don't set your hope on a better job. Set your hope 
fully on the grace that will be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Jonathan Edwards is one of my heroes, and if the only thing you know about him is 10th grade English class and reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and having your English teacher spit at him, shame on you. He was one of the great theologians and philosophers in American history. He was president of Princeton University before he died. Jonathan Edwards, when he was a very young man, he wrote 70 resolutions about his life that are profound. <laughs> Let me just give you an example. He has some big picture resolutions. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve never to do any manner or thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I can. But then he had some very specific resolutions. I won't go through many, but just a couple. One, resolve never to do anything out of revenge. But listen to this one. This was near the top of his list. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying. This was a very young man. If Tom is not healed, either through our prayers, which I'm going to believe he will be, and we're not going to stop praying, or still the work of, of God in his life through chemotherapy or immunology. If Tom is not healed, Tom will die of cancer. But listen, even if that's the case, I'm going to surprise you in what I say next. Even if that's the case, he will almost definitely not be the first person in this room to die. He may not even be in the top 20. We had a teenager killed within the last month and a half here in Loudoun County in a traffic accident. We're all going to die. Now, being preoccupied with that is morbid, but not facing it is denial, and it does not lead to resilient living. In 100 years from now, no one in this room will be alive. While it may be morbid to focus on your own death wrongly, it's denial not to consider it. It's going to happen. Think about it. This helps us set our hope on heaven. It builds resilience. And think about the reward that awaits you. Seriously, think about the reward that awaits you. Hebrews 11.6 says he rewards those who seek him. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Jesus. And it's a springboard from this entire faith chapter. Here's what it says about Jesus. Since he was surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and he's imagining Jesus in a, a running arena, I'm thinking, and he's surrounded by this catalog of faith that he's just talked about. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's run our race with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And then he says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross for what was set before him, mindful of what was coming, the reward that would be his, he could endure anything. In a hugely successful personal management book that I'm sure many of you have read, Stephen Covey outlines what he calls the seven habits of highly effective people. Some of you will remember this. Habit number two, begin with the end in mind. This is true of every work project, every study project, every life project. Know first where you're going to set out before you begin the journey. Measure twice, cut once. 
But Covey specifically applies this to life as a whole. He begins this chapter by encouraging us to imagine our own funeral. What would you want said about you? What would you want the impact of who you were to have been? That's a powerful exercise that I strongly recommend. He also makes a fascinating connection. Listen to this. He says, this habit is based on the principle of, quote, all things are created twice. This is what he means. Things are created first by design and then in reality. So he asks us to imagine a building, for instance. First there's the blueprint, then there's brick and mortar, created twice. He asks us to imagine a business or even parenting. First there's a vision, there's an idea, there's a plan, and then there is the reality. He suggests that our life should be lived this way, first by thinking with the end in mind, and then by living out the direction that we have set. Can you see how this is related to our resilience principle? Resilient people intentionally set their hope on the world to come. They are designing their lives first with eternity in mind, knowing that that is where they are ultimately headed. If eternity is true, then the overwhelming majority of our reality will not be spent in this current life. Covey makes a really, really important observation about this that I want you to hear. Under this principle, he says this. It's a principle that all things are created twice, but, listen, not all first creations are by conscious design. So everything is created twice. You know, first it's designed and then it's built, but not all first creations are by conscious design, Covey says. In our personal lives, if we do not develop our own self-awareness, and become responsible for first creations, we will empower other people and circumstances to shape much of our lives by default. We reactively live the scripts handed down to us by family, associates, other people's agenda, the pressures of circumstances, scripts from our earlier years, from our training or our conditioning. You will live with the end in mind. You will consciously live with the end of your life in mind, knowing with reality that you're going to die and spend eternity somewhere. You will live with that reality, and you will live more resiliently, or you will not. You will deny that reality. You will push it away as best you can, and your resilience will be compromised. Resilient people live with the end in mind. They know that this world cannot fully satisfy. They don't look for it to. The irony is more satisfaction comes to us when we peel back that expectation. Rick Warren concluded a section talking about this by saying, when you fully comprehend that there is more to life than just here and now, and you realize that life is just preparation for eternity, you will begin to live differently. You will start living in light of eternity, and that will color how you handle every relationship, task, and circumstance. Suddenly, many activities, goals, and even problems that seem so important will appear trivial, petty, and unworthy of your attention. The closer you live to God, the smaller everything else appears. And we're going to end today, but I want to ask it if you can, uh, give us a few minutes to respond to what God has said to you today, or during our time together when we've been talking about resilience. We're gonna sing a couple of songs as acts of worship, but we're also gonna provide you opportunities to be prayed for this morning. So I wanna wrap this up before I explain how we're gonna do this. I wanna wrap this up with a couple of directives. 
So how do we do this? How do we set our hope on the world to come? How do we fix our attention? Let me give a couple of hints. First, you may not believe this stuff. And trust me, all of us struggle. You know, Tom says, I doubt the whole shenanigan. And I sometimes do as well. I doubt the whole shtick. It's not unfrequent for me to have to rebuild my entire faith from the ground up. Can I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? And in reality, I wish I had time to talk about this morning, I can rationally believe that. If that's true, bam, everything else is possible. Because honestly, for me, sometimes when I face the thought of eternity, I think that's silly. Diane, that's an area of faith for her. Diane just always feels like she'll say to me periodically, you know, that's, I just know, I feel it. There's more. This is not all there is. And often when she says that, honestly, holy man, Ed, my thought is, no, there's not. But there is. So today, I'm trying to make you feel somewhat comfortable. You may not buy this stuff. You may be thinking, that's just not me. Let me encourage you. Begin there. Confess that to God. Take that to God. Take that to him today, this week. Take that to him. Ask him to confirm what was talked about today in your life this week. But others of you, you come with a connection. You have a sense of faith. Some of you have been walking with God for a long time. You've had a relationship with Christ for a long time, for many years. But you may be struggling today to hold on to this. Let me recommend a couple of things. Number one, I encourage you this week to do that visualization exercise from Covey. Imagine, actually, Get alone and imagine your own funeral and think about how you want to live from here to there to get to the funeral that you want, the kind of person that you would like to have been and what you would like to have said about you. Secondly, read something about heaven in the next six months. I'm going to recommend three things to you. First of all, I'd recommend the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. If you have not read it, it unpacks heaven biblically and it's awesome. Another book that I would recommend, it's more boring than Randy Alcorn's book, but it's, it's also great. It's called Surprised by Hope, and it's by N.T. Wright. And finally, I would recommend a book called Proof of Heaven. Now, there's a lot of flaky stuff in this book, but this book is amazing. This book was written by one of these people that has an after-death experience, but he is a neurosurgeon, and he was brain dead for several days, and he knows how to read his own charts, and he knows that he was brain dead. And he had an experience while he was of heaven. It's amazing. And then he came back. And it's a pretty incredible and technical and scientific book, but also very readable. Proof of heaven. Third thing I would recommend is get help. Get someone to pray for you. And we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to give you three options to be prayed for this morning. Option number one, there may be someone here today who has never wrestled down the idea that they, they're in. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about going to church. You're in. And you may have never, never wrestled that down. I want you to do that this morning. I want you to come down and I want you to grab one of these circles and I want you to say, Look, I've never said this out loud to anybody else before, but I believe this stuff. I'm in. I want to, Tom used the language, accept Jesus. He also he used the language salvation. 
That's the biblical language. You know, the guys who wrote the Bible had such a profound experience with their life being changed by God becoming part of their life because of an encounter with Jesus. They ransacked the language looking for images to be able to explain what had happened to them. They landed most often on that idea of being saved. It's like we were rescued. If you've never had that experience of, of having the whole thing flip upside down, come this morning and pray that with someone today. Say it out loud and pray it and let them pray over you. Secondly, there may be someone or 12 someones here today who need prayer for healing, physical healing. Please don't leave without having someone pray for you because it's real. And even if this morning, even if all you can say is, okay, just in case it's real, come down and get someone to pray for you for healing. They're going to gently lay their hand on you and they are going to pray that God will heal you in the name of Jesus. And it happens. So come this morning and ask for prayer. Thirdly, there may be two or three of you this morning who need prayer for resilience. You just need to be encouraged. You need God to strengthen and uplift. And if you do, come this morning and get someone to pray for you. Okay, we're going to begin by singing a new song, and it's beautiful. Jeree's going to lead us, and you're going to join her after the first verse. And after that first verse, then I'm going to invite you to, to come. And we'll sing this together, and then you're invited to come. Let's do the third verse and let's stand as we do. And I'm going to invite you. 
if you feel the need or the desire for prayer, don't miss it. It doesn't matter if there's one of you. Don't wait for others to come. We'll, we've got a whole host of people here who are willing to pray because I didn't want there to be much of a line if there were a number of people who wanted prayer. So if you need prayer this morning, come while we're singing. Choir, let's sing with Jerry. Soon and very soon, see the I will be.
Bless the Lord, choir. That is our prayer and that's our offering this morning. We pray that everything that you have spoken and everything that you have done, you will seal and you will protect. 
I pray that you will guard and govern our hearts with uh, your peace. And I pray that you will strengthen the arms that have grown weak and the legs that have grown weary. And I pray, Lord, that you will build resilience into us in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our connection with you. God, I pray that we would mount up with wings like eagles, that we would run and not grow weary, that we would walk and not be faint. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, thank you so much for coming. You may go in peace, and we will let people continue to be prayed for, for those who need more prayer. Thanks for coming.